102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Julianne Holt Longstad, a professor of psychology and neuroscience and a leading expert on loneliness and its long-term effects. We will be talking about the current epidemic of loneliness and its long-term consequences on both the individual and societal level. Later in the hour, I will be talking with Tim Bono, lecturer and researcher in psychological and brain sciences, who will be discussing the epidemic of loneliness in the millennial and younger generations and solutions to address it. Thank you for joining me today, Julianne. Oh, no problem. The 19th Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, under the Obama administration, has described an epidemic of loneliness. He considers it to be America's fastest growing public crisis. Can you explain what is happening today? There has been greater recognition uh, recently around the some of the risks associated with social isolation and loneliness and and other forms of social disconnection, both in terms of uh, psychological well-being as well as as uh, physical health, and uh, we're even starting to gain some uh, evidence around cognitive health as well. What he's describing is does exist, and that's what they're finding in in the research. Yeah, so we have very good evidence of the risk, um, and there's evidence that uh, that a significant portion of the the population uh, does experience loneliness um, or is socially isolated. And what is the difference between someone feeling lonely versus social isolation? I'm glad you asked that because I think there's a lot of confusion around that and those terms often get used interchangeably as if they mean the same thing. Um, when in reality, um, although they they can be related, um, so they can go hand in hand, uh, oftentimes they can also be distinct. So um, let me just take a moment to, to define what each of these are. Um, social isolation is uh, really thought to be more objective um, isolation. So it's often marked by um, few relationships or infrequent social contact. Um, whereas loneliness is thought to be much more subjective. It's the, the distressing feeling of, of isolation. Um, it's often defined as the discrepancy between one's actual level of social connection and one's desired level of social connection. Um, and so certainly being isolated puts you at risk for loneliness uh, and um, but people can be isolated and not lonely. They might enjoy being alone um, and, and enjoy that solitude. On the other hand, people can uh, feel lonely but not be isolated. Uh, so even despite uh, being around others, uh, someone might still feel profoundly lonely. The idea of being lonely in a crowd or lonely at a party or even uh, feeling lonely in one's own marriage. Um, so these uh, are, are distinct but can go hand in hand. And in this case, it's about social isolation then, this epidemic of loneliness. It's more about the fact that there are fewer interactions then or connections um, well, that we do make? see um, significant prevalence rates of both, uh, and but they're, they're um, measured differently. So uh, a recent Cigna survey um, uh, showed that, in fact, this, uh, I believe just came out a couple weeks ago, um, showed that there over half uh, um, of the respondents indicated that they felt lonely. Um, whereas if we look at indicators of, of social isolation, that might be measured more in terms of things like the extent to which people live alone, uh, or the size of their social network, or the extent to which they participate in social groups. 
um, all of which um, we do have some evidence that uh, not only is, is there a significant portion of the population that that may be experiencing those things, but um, there's evidence to suggest that uh, that isolation may be increasing in some of those indicators. Okay, so you're saying there are parallels in terms of you have people who are with other people, but they're not sensing that deeper connection with others, and then you have those who are isolated and who are presented with less opportunities to connect with other people. So they're both happening at the same time. Yeah. So what's unfortunate, though, is oftentimes uh, they're only measured they're only measuring one or the other. <laughs> so we've got a survey that's measuring loneliness, but they're not measuring in the same people whether they're also isolated or vice versa. They may be looking at indicators of, you know, if people are living alone or the size of their social network or they're participating in social groups, but they're not asking also if they feel lonely. So it's hard to know the prevalence rates of those who are um, who are experiencing both. Okay, but we do know for sure that both is happening, maybe not together or maybe together. But we do have have evidence of of the prevalence rates of each of these, yes. And what are the long-term consequences of loneliness on the individual level and as a society? Yeah. Um, so my research has uh, shown that social isolation, loneliness, and living alone each significantly predict um, increased risk for premature mortality. And uh, that's independent of age and health status. Uh, so those who who are isolated, living alone, um, or lonely uh, are are dying earlier. Um, and so this is this is a significant uh, risk. And and conversely, we have evidence that people who are more socially connected um, are um, protected. So a 50% increase odds of survival. So we have good evidence in terms of mortality risk uh, and and protection. We also have good evidence that. Um, Isolation and loneliness increase our risk for a variety of, of chronic health conditions, particularly cardiovascular disease. Um, it increases risk for stroke as well. Uh, there's also evidence uh, that this is associated with uh, um, mental health, so depression, anxiety, uh, as well as cognitive health. So those who are isolated and lonely are at increased risk for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's as well. My understanding is that most people typically think of loneliness as being more prevalent in the elderly population, but now it's increasing across all age groups, correct? Um, we do see loneliness across age groups. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that um, that the highest prevalence rates is among uh, young or Gen Z, the 18 to 22 year olds. Um, but certainly, it's it's important for older adults as well. Um, uh, Particularly, older adults may be at greater risk for some of the precipitating factors that uh, increase risk for isolation and loneliness also. Well, what's interesting is that I'm hearing that even mothers and fathers can feel lonely or isolated, even though they're perceived to be preoccupying their time with their family life, right? And yet they're giving it, they've given up, let's say, the personal interest or having conversations where the focus is on them and their challenges, and that that yeah. may be more hidden in some ways? Yeah, so one of the things that um, some research suggests is that these life transitions, and so one of the, the life transitions that you just described is that transition to parenthood. And so oftentimes these life transitions can disrupt our typical um, uh, social networks and the way in which we participate socially. And so whether that's, um, you know, for young adults transitioning from leaving home for the first time and being on their own uh, at university or, or otherwise to the transition to uh, being part of a couple or transition to a parenthood or transition to um, 
uh, retirement, that these kinds uh, or even, you know, midlife of, of transitioning and moving across the country for a job change, perhaps. Um, whenever there's these kinds of transitions, these can disrupt our our, our social networks. And, and, the, um, and so these are our potential points uh, that could trigger someone to become more isolated and lonely. Um, and may also be important points at which we can uh, intervene to reduce risk as well. So the loss of communities from people moving around um, or some kind of life transition where they're not in the same social group anymore that they were in, and they have to then figure out how to create a new environment that allows them to connect with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. What about technology? Are you finding technology to be a factor Well, we certainly know that technology is influencing the way in which we are socializing. Um, uh, It has shifted the way in which we interact socially. Um, And so there are surveys that show that that this is a, a primary means of communicating socially now. But also we have to recognize that Technology is is incredibly diverse, um, so we're not looking at just one thing, um, and and it's continually evolving. And um, even if we're looking at a particular mode of of, of technology, um, there are many ways to use it, and so it's it's incredibly complex. What kinds of aspects may be helpful and protective that um, that can help us uh, socially? And what aspects um, may be more harmful and detrimental? But loneliness is not about just being with people, right? I mean, you could be, like you were saying, you could be in a room at a party and you could still feel lonely. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a quality connection. Are there studies that show the best way to create that sense of connection or deeper sense of connection with others? Yeah, um, so uh, there's a whole field of relationship science that looks at uh, relationship satisfaction and um, uh, various components. So uh, one being responsiveness, um, so the extent to which each member of a relationship um, is responsive to their their partner, uh, that this can lead to greater satisfaction in in the relationship. Um, and so relationships, of course, are are built over time. And so there is um, an investment that uh, um, needs to be made in terms of these relationships um, that that this trust and intimacy is built over time. And so, you know, it it can be hard for someone who might be otherwise um, uh, feeling lonely or isolated and and trying to create new relationships. And so there may be different approaches that may need to be made um, when creating new relationships versus uh, fostering and nurturing existing relationships. This is more even more of a challenge for the elderly population, right? Because my understanding is that sometimes their only contact is with their medical provider. That can be the case, uh, yes. And so uh, many community-based groups are, are uh, looking at potential kinds of interventions. Um, but what we need to recognize is that uh, really in order to address this, this needs to occur on multiple levels. And so the medical um, and healthcare community can play one role because of the fact that that's often a first step of of um, contact. The, this can be an important role for identifying those who might be at risk and providing appropriate referrals in the community. Um, but that uh, community-based efforts are also important, and where uh, possible, um, uh, family uh, involvement can be um, really important as well. Well, this leads to, as you're mentioning, the multiple levels of involvement, 
there aren't any large-scale projects in the U.S. to address it like smoking, right? And you, we, I'm seeing governments like United Kingdom and Denmark that have taken action to address this problem. Do you think that the U.S. should be making it a public policy to address this epidemic? Yeah, in fact, uh, I served on... Uh, National Academy of Science uh, consensus committee that just recently issued a report around social isolation and loneliness among older adults. And in that report, um, we identified uh, specific goals as well as recommendations in how not only the the healthcare system can address this, but how policy might um, play a role as well. And so, um, there, there, there's definitely opportunity uh, for that and, and evidence to support some of these recommendations. And so um, I would certainly in, encourage <laughs> um, uh, looking at this report and those recommendations for uh, what, what we can possibly do. Why should advancing social connection be a public policy priority? One of the things that we we can say quite confidently is that this poses a significant health risk uh, and that a significant portion of the population is affected. We also know that there are economic costs associated with this. And there's evidence that this may be an underlying root cause for other pressing kinds of concerns. So, for instance, um, concerns such as uh, addiction and and violence, uh, that by addressing one's social connection or isolation, that this may help us address some of these other kinds of issues. And so uh, because we have so much evidence of this effect, uh, it we should prioritize it accordingly uh, and and not view it as something that is competing with other important issues that also need to be addressed, but rather view this as uh, by addressing this, we can also uh, help address some of these other pressing issues. So it sounds like now that it's measurable and it's clearly an epidemic, that we should focus on how do we keep our society healthy, both mentally and physically, and they're correlated or they're intertwined. So this mm-hmm. is just as important as smoking or any other issues. Well, the opiate, for example, right issue that's a uh, concern that we we have in our country right now. So you feel like it's up there at that level where we should be addressing it then. So when we look at the evidence in terms of the magnitude of effect that it has on on risk for mortality and health issues, uh, the magnitude of the effect is comparable with other kinds of of risk factors that we take quite seriously, and so it's it's important that we. Um, also give this the same level of of attention and resources given the level of evidence that we have. And is there anything we can do on an individual level to make this a national priority? So uh, one of the things that uh, we recognize is that as the public becomes more aware and and um, and there's growing concern around an issue, this can help motivate uh, various organizations in terms of how uh, resources are allocated and prioritized. And so the the more that we can help uh, raise awareness around this, this can um, be one certainly one approach. Um, but on an individual level, of course, we can each do our own part of of looking out for those who might um, be in need or might be at risk, and uh, be that that um, 
that helping hand or uh, uh, to someone who might be in need. Um, we can be the resource to, to others and help our neighbors, um, help those in our community, um, look out for um, those that, that may need our help. So it sounds like we should always reach out when we can. And, yeah. And I also heard that volunteering makes a huge difference. Would you agree with that? Yeah. In fact, there's some scientific evidence that suggests that providing support to others may be more beneficial than receiving support. And so uh, when we help others, not only are we helping them, but we're helping ourselves as well. Uh, So uh, volunteering is, is a wonderful way that we can do that. Well, thank you for your feedback. And thank you for joining me on Spark today, Julian. My pleasure. Thank you. We are going to take a quick break and thank our underwriters. Next up, I will be talking with Tim Bono, lecturer and researcher in psychological and brain sciences, who will be discussing the epidemic of loneliness in the millennial and younger generations and solutions to address it. Keep real radio alive, people. Live, local, real radio. That's why you're here listening to KXSF, right? on 102.5 FM San Francisco. We give you more of what you want, music and programming curated by actual human beings who live locally in your neighborhoods, plus live music and interviews with local artists and bands. But to stay on the air, KXSF really needs your help. Donate now to KXSF by going online to www.kxsf.com dot fm and clicking on donate it's a hundred percent tax deductible keep real radio alive in san francisco and donate now everyone thank you so much this is kxsf 102.5 fm streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm and you're tuned in to spark with kelly marlowe informing minds inspiring ideas igniting innovation Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Tim Bono, lecturer and researcher in the psychological and brain sciences. He is the author of Happiness 101, Simple Secrets to Smart Living and Well-Being. We will be talking about the current epidemic of loneliness, in particular tying to the millennials and younger generations. Thank you for joining me today, Tim. Of course. My understanding is that many people typically think of loneliness as more prevalent in the elderly population, but now it's becoming more prevalent in the younger generations, including the millennials. Can you explain what is happening in the younger generations? Sure, and you're exactly right that we have seen increases in the proportion of young people who are reporting an increase in loneliness along with other forms of psychological distress that typically accompany loneliness like anxiety or depression and one of the things that we've noticed if you look at the data sets that have been tracking this longitudinally for example the pew research organization and other institutions that look at these numbers um, those numbers were were pretty much stable throughout the 90s and early 2000s but starting around 2011 is where we started to notice significant and dramatic increases in loneliness in anxiety and in other forms of psychological distress. And that's also where we noticed decreases in happiness and life satisfaction. So 2011 seemed to be a year that demographers became interested in understanding what might be driving some of this. And one of the things that seems to have been going on is that 2011 was also the year where smartphones became ubiquitous. And it's the same year that Instagram and Facebook and other forms of social media were becoming more prevalent and more commonly to be used than ever before. Um, So there are likely a number of factors at play, but among them that I think is important to give attention to is the role of technology and social media use. There is a correlation that's being gathered around this relationship? Yes, yeah. So it has certainly inspired a whole host of research to investigate the nature of this relationship. And sure enough, when researchers have examined specifically the amount of time people use, or I should say the amount of time that people spend on social media and how that is affecting their well-being, one of the things that we're finding is that among the heaviest users, those who um, 
are spending a large portion of their day on social media are in fact seeing increases in their their loneliness, their envy, their um, inclination to engage in social comparison, and in other studies where they limit the amount of time that people can spend on these forms of technology, they see improvements to their overall mental health and well-being. But technology makes it easier to communicate and connect, and yet with all the social and dating apps, it's fostering a culture of isolation. Why is this? Yes, well, and you're exactly right that it does have the potential to at least at the start provide an opportunity for people to connect with one another. Um, And that's another thing that the research is finding, that it's not just the amount of time, probably what's even more important than the amount of time is how people are using it. And if you're using it as as a, a, a means to an end, with the end being that you will then be meeting up with people um, in real time and having authentic connections with them, social media can be a wonderful thing. But we know that for a lot of people, that's not how they're using it. It's often on a lonely Friday night when they're already feeling a little bit down on themselves. They open up their phones and start scrolling through these apps, and suddenly they're seeing other people who are out with their friends or other people who just bought a new car or other people who are on a vacation, and then they are filled with the sense of envy and regret that their life doesn't look like those around them. They are engaged in that social comparison, and that is really what seems to be at the root of the problem and why social media seems to be so problematic for the psychological health of the heaviest users, is that it's this vehicle for social comparison, which psychologists have known for a long time, provides a real problem to achieving a sense of well-being. So is it because people are not showing their authentic self online and it's more about the perfect self that they're putting out there? Yes, that's another part of the problem is that that we know that people, in terms of the content that they are choosing to display on their social media websites, is often an exaggerated or at very least an incomplete view of the reality of their lives. And you see this play out all the time where you see people and they're um, spending time together at a restaurant or at some event um, in some city, and instead of spending time with each other, they're more preoccupied with getting the perfect Instagram picture to make it look like they're having this amazing experience, even though they may have just been fighting with each other, or even though they might not really be enjoying the cultural attraction that they're seeing, they're making it look like they do so that they can attract the envy of other people. And that also is problematic because, again, it's all feeding this vicious cycle of social comparison and unfortunately, a lot of people are treating that as if it is the, the whole truth and the complete truth and nothing but the truth, when in fact it's the opposite. It's people who are crafting this digital media persona to make it look like they're having this amazing time, when in fact it's really an exaggerated or otherwise misrepresented version of reality. It's very disruptive doing social interaction to pull out your phone and start taking pictures and start scrolling to see whether people are giving you thumbs up and so on. That's exactly right. And that's what makes it not only unproductive, but actually counterproductive for well-being. Because the, the biggest contributor to our sense of happiness and well-being is the time that we're spending with other people. But that time is now being hijacked by wasting time getting the perfect lighting and the perfect background setting and then posting it online and then going back to see how many people provided a comment or a like or some other form of validation when that time could be used for enjoying the company of other people or taking in the cultural attraction that you're seeing or enjoying the food or whatever it is. Um, and we're spending less time actually enjoying the experience and more time preoccupied with this vehicle of social comparison. So we're taking the thing that could contribute to our happiness, authentic connection with another people, and we are replacing that with the biggest barrier to happiness, which is social comparison. And that very likely is contributing to those increases in depression and anxiety that continue to be on the rise. So instead of using the social apps to foster unreal and deeper conversations, which are which are possible, correct? And instead it's being used to foster popularity, entertainment, and instant gratification? Yes. Yeah, if, if you are using 
those platforms in the appropriate way, again, they, they can be wonderful things. Um, and I am in no way suggesting that we should get rid of social media or get rid of technology, but we have to be wise consumers of it and understand that they pose real risks to our psychological health if they're misused in the ways that we've described. But if they're used correctly, again, if they're used to find out who else in a particular city enjoys the same kind of activities that you are, or if you're using it to find out, to organize a social calendar or learn what kinds of events are being sponsored, in that case, um, those apps can be a wonderful thing because um, then, again, there are means to an end. By using the app, you are learning about the opportunity for authentic connection, and that brings you to the place of being able to engage with others more meaningfully. So you can have many followers, but not many maybe there for you personally. What is it about having the followers that are so important then? Well, I think that there's a difference between a short-term sense of happiness and the long-term, more durable sense of, of well-being. It is true that every time you get a like on Instagram or you see that someone else is following you, it provides a momentary release of dopamine into the reward center of the brain. Um, it's the same kind of hit that you get when you, if you go on a shopping spree or you eat an ice cream cone or you're in jackpot or you're, you're in Vegas and you, you, you hit a jackpot on something. It feels good in the moment. Um, and so people often chase that short-term pleasure not realizing that there are other behaviors that are more important for the long-term happiness that really is the basis of those relationships that are, that are long-lasting. So even though it feels good right now to get a quick follower or, or a quick like on Instagram, in the end, that's not the stuff that actually brings about that more meaningful, the long-lasting sense of purpose um, that is especially important when we're going through a tough time and we need somebody to talk to, or, um, or otherwise it's the basis of those authentic forms of connection that, that lead to the, the, that deeper, more long-lasting sense of happiness. What I find interesting is that online connections seem very real to people, especially young people, right? They're, even though they're not really interacting with the person in like a face-to-face -face way, but for them it's real, what is wrong with this? Well, yeah, it can certainly be an illusion because, um, again, the appearance would suggest that there is a certain uh, element of connection. But if that connection is only existing online, then that really significantly limits just how deep and meaningful that connection can even be. And so that's what one of the important ways, I think, to educate people who are new to this technology, or even those who have used it for a long time, is that we have to be mindful, is the connection that I'm forming with another person one that has the potential to offer a certain depth um, that I feel a level of authenticity with another person? And if that relationship only exists online, our ability to connect meaningfully with another person um, it requires much more than just text messages that go back and forth or, or posts or likes that go back and forth. Um, the, the deepest, most meaningful connections take place in person when we, st when we spend extended time, time with another person and we are truly vulnerable and our authentic self. And that's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen online because that platform just does not foster an environment where that can take place. But people will argue that they are having real conversations, especially if they're FaceTiming each other. Certainly. And, and, and if you're FaceTiming, that's different. So again, this is in no way an indictment of social media or technology in general. There are some technologies, Skype, FaceTime, where you can actually see the other person, that, that can be a very effective way to communicate. Because then um, you very likely are able to maintain a conversation back and forth with that person. You are able to see their facial expression and other nonverbals that, that uh, give you a more complete picture of the individual. It's probably not, still not quite as good as the interpersonal connection you feel when you are physically with another person. But certainly FaceTime um, is much closer to the authentic connection than just you know, 140 characters that you see on Twitter or, you know, a thumbs up that you give somebody on Facebook. But what about texting your feelings and mm -hmm. you texting paragraphs and paragraphs and the other person responds? Is that still authentic and you're having a real connection? Well, I think that it depends on what your existing relationship with that person already is. If it's your best friend who you usually see all the time, but they just so happen to be traveling this week for work and they're in another city and you're both in a situation where you can't pick up the phone and talk right now, and so you're doing this by text, I think that that could be okay. But if this is someone who, with whom your, pri your primary means of communicating with them is just over text, 
then no, that's not the same. You are losing out on what otherwise would be there if you were actually in person with the other with, with that individual. Because again, with text message, um, there's so much of nonverbal communication that is completely lost. Our ability to communicate with somebody else is so much more than just the words that appear in a text message. It has to do with the timing and the pace of the conversation, the, the facial expression, the vocal intonation. Those things are really the basis of that connection, and all of that is lost if it's just over text. We're going to take a quick break and thank our underwriters, and we'll be back about the current loneliness in the younger generations. Support for KXSF comes from Chris Stover Properties, a San Francisco realtor who understands the city and can help you navigate the market whether you're a buyer or a seller. Chris believes that contributing to KXSF strengthens our diverse community by keeping live music and the arts alive. Contact Chris by calling him at 415-786-8020. Thanks for supporting independent radio KXSF 102.5 FM San Francisco. This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. Tim Bono and I were talking about technology and the connection to the current loneliness in the younger generations. People hunger for authenticity and therefore they think they're sharing it all online so that people can relate to them. Do you think they're actually doing that and there's a sense of real connection by just putting everything online? Well, I think that people believe that they're doing that and there's certainly there's not it's not necessarily harmful there certainly there are situations that could be harmful if they are oversharing or providing personal details that make them vulnerable or information about their location that people could then stalk them or something but if it's just emotions i mean one thing that we know that is very effective when someone is experiencing emotional distress is putting that into language and sometimes people just have a bad day and they just need to put it out there and then when they get the likes or they get the comments or people put in memes that say hang in there and keep going that can provide a temporary relief that kind of gives them a second wind to keep going so if people are doing that occasionally, I think it's okay. But I don't believe that it's appropriate for people to be doing that as their primary means of persevering when times are difficult. Um, or at very least, that shouldn't be the only way that they're doing that. There, there is no substitute, from my perspective, on having um, a, a strong, solid support network that is comprised of friends and family and other people who know you well, who you can turn to and be in person with, or at least be able to pick up the phone and sustain a, a, a lengthy conversation with in those times of, of difficulty. So it's fine if, if you're going to put some stuff on, on the Internet from time to time. But, um, yeah, again, if you're doing this as your primary means of, of getting support, there are other outlets that are far more effective that can, in the long run, go a long way to improving um, your psychological well-being. It sounds like it has to be in person, or else you can't really have a real emotional connection. And we would, we have to go back to the old-fashioned way of meeting and connecting with people. Yeah, well, you know, I, I you know, in in terms of of meeting people or connecting with people, again, if you're using social media as the as the first step that then leads to in-person connection, I think that's fine. You know, I mean, if you look at the proportion of people, especially in the younger generations, who are meeting dating partners and even their life partners, people who they end up marrying, on 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 Tinder and Bumble and Hinge. It's very large, and there's nothing wrong with meeting people that way as long as it's leading to an in-person connection that you're able to sustain. So it's the, the, fine if it's, the, if it's the thing that sort of initiates the, the whole process, but it shouldn't be what sustains it. It's got to be um, at least mo- it, it's got to get to a point where most of the interactions are face-to-face and in-person. It's my understanding that people used to meet in church, and it was a place that fostered community and relationships and this has changed. So where can people go for a sense of community and connection now? Well, I think that what's most important to meet people, because especially when you're looking 
to meet people who will become um, relationship partners or just close friends. I mean, the basis of a strong relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a platonic relationship, is a set of shared values and interests. And so I think it's, it's just important that you put yourself in environments where you are likely to be surrounded um, with people who share those interests and values. And for some people, that could be a religious community. But for others, you know, it could be a community theater or a music organization or a sports club um, where you are, again, on a regular basis getting together with people who have the same interests as you. And, and once you identify other people who share your interests, that's a great place to see where else you have common ground. And that common ground really is the starting point for a solid and healthy relationship. So if you don't have any interest, you need to develop them in order to find common ground with others, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's worthwhile to consider if, um, if your current activities or your current schedule is not putting you in touch with people, maybe ask coworkers or ask other people you know what kinds of activities they are involved in and try your hand at something. You know, another way to um, ironically get people to like you more is to ask them to help you do something. So sometimes if you show up to play a sport or you show up to a cooking class and you're sort of the person who's new and doesn't really know how to do things, People who are more seasoned and experienced sometimes um, are endeared by people who are new, who they can then teach. So, you know, you might try your hand at new things. You don't have to be skilled or an expert at something to nonetheless find a community that does stuff that, that you at least bring a willingness to try. But loneliness isn't really just about being with people, right? You could still feel alone with a group of people. Yes, that's an important distinction that we know that that, that being alone and feeling lonely are not the same thing, that there are lots of people who are perfectly content being alone, and we know that there are other people who are in relationships or they've been married for a long time or they're constantly surrounded by other people, and yet they feel lonely. So what's most important is do you feel like you have others in your life who you could call upon if you needed them. Because you could have lots of people who you know, lots of acquaintances, but none of them you really have a relationship with that's strong enough that you could reach out to them if you needed. And likewise, there are lots of people who spend most of their time by themselves and they're content with that, but they know that if they needed somebody, if they were going through a hard time, they, they would know who they could pick up the phone and then be at that person's house um, to talk through whatever um, they needed support with. So how do you address loneliness by creating the deeper and quality connection that is not superficial, where you're not talking about your work or your family, you know, other than that you're able to talk about yourself and what's important to you and your challenges? Mm-hmm. Well, the most important way to develop that, ultimately, you want to be at a level where you have earned the trust of the other person, and that person has also earned your trust. And sometimes those those relationships do start by talking about the more superficial things. How's your family? How's work? And then from there, once you identify um, those, that common ground and you spend more time with another person, then you have more opportunities to make yourself vulnerable or you ask that person to do favors for you or um, you start by, by explaining some, some more mundane difficulties or asking their opinion about some potentially a controversial issue or you're putting them in a position where they have to be somewhat vulnerable with you. And as long as you can then um, listen to them respectfully, especially if it's something that you disagree about, um, but still maintain an element of care and concern and compassion for that person, that ultimately is developing that trust that allows you to keep going deeper. And then you ask them to do bigger favors or you spend more time with them or you, you, over time they become someone who you can turn to when you're going through a really difficult time. So it, it is a process that takes time, but um, you know, let your intuition guide you toward those people who you feel um, that they would be those, those good people to surround yourself with, who you admire, who have habits and work ethics that you would want to emulate yourself and, um, you know, do good things for them, ask them to do good things for you. And over time, that that really can be the basis of a strong relationship. On a personal level, you have to first acknowledge that you are lonely rather than scroll through your online app, right? Yeah, I think that it's important to acknowledge that, that negativity of all forms are common to the human species. So we all, from time to time, are going to experience loneliness and sadness and anxiety. And um, it's important not to suppress those emotions, but to acknowledge that they exist and then to have some coping strategies, to have somebody you can call or have an activity that can f- take your mind off of that and, and redirect you to a place that will help to restore your mood. So let's say you have no one. 
What's the best way to put yourself out there? Well, if you feel like you, you have no one, um, hopefully there's at least people who you know or people who you would want to know. And um, I, I would encourage you, if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to them just yet, you know, there are a whole host of strategies. Um, the field of positive psychology um, has a lot of strategies that have been identified about ways that you can essentially work on yourself to increase your own sense of happiness. Because when people um, invest in themselves and take care of themselves and exercise and practice gratitude and meditate and do the other things that boost the health and well-being of you as an individual, you are then in a position to attract other happy, successful, hardworking people to want to be with you. So once you've worked on yourself, then think about those activities that you really care about, whether it's getting involved in the arts or getting involved in sports or some other community activity, and then spend time doing those things. And eventually you will meet people who, again, um, have some things in common with you that can form the basis of those relationships. You have to make it a priority to create a community and support network for yourself. Yes, and that's exactly right, that these are things that don't just fall out of the sky. Um, These are things that you have to make a choice to do. But the good news is that we have quite a lot of research from the behavioral sciences showing that there are very simple, small things that we can incorporate into our daily lives to boost our psychological health, which in turn can give us the confidence um, to take that energy to those other settings where there might be people who would make those those great friends and relationship partners. Wrapping up on the top three things that we individuals can do today to make that difference, what would they be? Well, I would say that probably the simplest and most robust behavior that has been shown in the research to really go a long way toward improving our psychological health is the practice of gratitude. A lot of studies have shown that when people practice gratitude, um, even just taking five minutes a week to reflect on a list of good things that have gone on in your life, they see improvements in how they feel about themselves overall. They report more optimism from week to week, and they also show improvements in their physical health. We know that there's a strong connection between our psychological health and Um, our physical health and the practice of gratitude. You don't even have to change anything about your life. It's just about directing attention to the good things going on there. So that's the first one. The the, the second one is um, what psychologists call pro-social behavior. So thinking of some activity like a community service project, doing something that allows you to feel like you're contributing to something bigger than yourself, that proves to be foundational for sense of well-being. So again, community involvement, but you know, investing time and effort and energy towards something important to you um, is very easy and very important. And then the third one, which kind of goes back to, to the first one, is the idea of, of ensuring that we are taking care of our physical well-being. Um, remember, our physical health is at the foundation of our psychological health. So getting a good night's sleep on a regular basis, incorporating physical activity, you know, at least 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity, um, five days a week, you know, and, and even if you break that up into to 10 minute chunks where you're just, you know, walking around the neighborhood after, after work or just, just running on a treadmill for a period of time, if, you, if that can accumulate to 30 minutes a day for five days a week, um, that seems to go a long way toward not only our physical health, but our psychological health as well. So focus on self-care and feel good about who you are first. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you can feel good about who you are first, Others will pick up on that, and people are attracted to those who take care of themselves and feel good about themselves. Great advice. Thank you for joining me on Spark today. It's been my pleasure.